Thank you for listening to the Alliance Church Podcast. We desire to connect you with God and one another, whether here in Wisconsin or around the world. Let's listen into this week's message. Twenty twenty three is a silver anniversary of some sort for me. Uh, in August of this year, it'll be twenty five years that, at the young age of forty three, I was laying, found myself lying on an operating table at Appleton Medical Center, where a surgeon worked on me for five hours. Uh, he broke my chest apart for emergency triple bypass surgery had a heart attack at 43. And even though I had run the Boston Marathon the year earlier, I was blocked up in three main arteries and didn't have a clue. <clears throat> that was the uh, lowest of lowest of lowest time in my life. I was physically, I was mentally, I was spiritually weak and exhausted. I was spent, I was discouraged. I had a spirit of fear on me. I was constantly in fear. It's in those kind of dire moments, more than any other time, where you and I find out what our faith is really like, right? What do I really believe about God? Who is this God? What, what is he doing right now? Does he even care? Six months later, I was still recovering from that surgery, and I was in the surgeon's office for a follow-up visit as he was about to uh, evaluate my recovery. And there was, an, uh, there was no one else in the waiting room except just myself and an older man who happened to be sitting in a chair nearby, and he started to strike up a conversation with me. It was clear he wanted to talk, and I really did not want to talk. But he kept asking me questions, and uh, finally we, he told me that he was a Jewish man, and he was, had just returned from the Holy Land, because I told him I was a pastor, and, and he started to talk about Jesus. I couldn't believe it, but he started to talk about what he believed about Jesus. Now, I've spent a lot of time with Jewish people. I grew up in a town that was 80% Jewish. There were four houses of worship in the town I grew up in, in New Jersey, one Catholic church that I went to, and then three Jewish synagogues, a Reform, a Conservative, and an Orthodox synagogue. Most of my friends in high school were Jewish, and then I ended up working in New York City for seven years in a place that I spent a lot of time with Jewish brokers. So I know the Jewish people. And uh, I've shared my faith with plenty of Jewish people, so I knew where to go. And I said to him, his name was Norman. I said, Norman, here's the bottom line. Jesus is your guy. He is the Messiah. He's the Jewish Messiah. I'm a Gentile. I got grafted in late. He's your guy. And then I started to quote Isaiah 53, and I said, you need to go to Isaiah chapter 53. It'll describe the Messiah. You're looking for someone who's going to be the king of your nation, and yes, 
the Messiah will come back one day and set up his kingdom from Mount Zion, from Jerusalem, just like all the prophets said, for a thousand years he'll reign on earth as the king of kings and lords of lords in the millennial kingdom. But the first time he's going to come, he's going to suffer for the sins of the world. It's described in Isaiah 53 in your Bible. And he said to me, he listened to all that. He said, I think I know who the Messiah is. I said, who is he? He told me, Harry Truman. <laughs> you know why he said Harry Truman? 1948, Israel becomes a nation. And as soon as they declare themselves the nation of Israel, a couple of days later, it was President Harry Truman that affirmed that. And so he saw Harry Truman as the Messiah. Who is Jesus? Is he God? We're still asking those questions today. Uh, this week I was reminded, I was looking through my file, and I was reminded of a, a, a Time Magazine cover that came out in 2021. Here, here it is. We're still asking the question. I don't know if you know this, but Jesus has been on the cover of Time Magazine more than any other individual since World War II, uh, with the exception of, of course, of presidents. He's been the main person on the covers. Why? Well, frankly, there's a big uptick in sales whenever they put Jesus on the cover. By the way, just a little trivia, Richard Nixon has the most uh, time uh, covers at 55. But the title of that uh, Time Magazine cover is Jesus, Who Do You Say That I Am? People are still asking the question today, who is Jesus? Who is he? That's what Palm Sunday's about. That's what this whole week is about coming up. Who is Jesus? And I want us to look at three groups of people who answered that question by their response to Jesus on that very first Palm Sunday. So let's go back to the text. Uh, Pastor Brandon read a portion. I'm going to read a little bit more. But let's, let's see what the scripture says about what happened. Let's read the text. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, the disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been in, written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The very first group of people on that Palm Sunday who answer the question, who is Jesus, are the people on the roadside. These are the crowds. And there, at that time, there was actually two large crowds that converged on Palm Sunday. If you go to Israel, and we, and we have a couple of trips that we run now to Israel, and I hope you go there. I hope all of you put that on your bucket list. But when you go to Israel, when you get to Jerusalem, Mount Zion, which is kind of like the highlight, you'll see 
the, the old Jerusalem, the old city, it's up on a hill. It's Mount Zion. And then there's a valley. There's some graves there. And the, and the Jewish people, uh, it's very expensive. And they've been there. Some graves have been there for thousands of years. They want to be buried around Mount Zion. Why? They believe, they believe that when the resurrection occurs, they'll be the first to be resurrected because they're near Jerusalem. But there's a grave site there. There's a valley. And then you go up to the hill. And there's, Mount, uh, there's a Mount of Olives. On the other side of the Mount of Olives is Bethany. This is where... Uh, Lazarus was, and Mary and Martha. And so you have a whole crowd from Bethany coming to Jerusalem. Then you have the people in the old city, Mount Zion, coming to meet Jesus. So you have two crowds that are converging on that day. Let's read again what it says, verse 13. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, blessed is the king of Israel. It was a bad day for palm trees. No doubt the crowd is going around and they're going to date palm trees. That's what you go, they're still there in Israel where they get dates from. Those are the kind of palm trees. And they ripped these branches off. And this crowd, just like if you were to see on a news clip, they were, in, they were in absolute emotional frenzy. And there's many of them. Historians say there could be as many as one million people in Jerusalem on that day because it's Passover week. And all of these date trees are getting trimmed by all these people and they're waving these palm branches as Jesus passes by. And what are they shouting? Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. These are very, very religious Jews here. Hosanna comes from a Hebrew word, and it means help. I pray, save us now. That's what it means. And by the way, every religious Jew knew that, that psalm, that phrase, because these words come from a group of psalms that are called the Hallel. And the Hallel was sung every morning at the temple choir, especially at the festivals. So everybody knows what that means when they're singing those words. They're saying, this person we believe is the Messiah. He's the future king of Israel. He's the one who has prophesied. The son of David. No question about it. The people on the roadside see Jesus as their savior. I mean, what a happy scene. Pause button. Now, I don't mean to darken the joy of Palm Sunday, but you're going to see that Palm Sunday for Jesus was really a very disappointing day. This celebration is not what it seems. Do all those people on the roadside really believe that Jesus is their savior, their king? I'm sure some of them do. But the vast majority of those people on that roadside, at the end of the week on Friday, same crowd that will be screaming at the top of their lungs for Jesus 
to die. Mark chapter 15. And now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate. Knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted a little louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed over to be crucified. Jesus is not fooled by this public adoration. He knows that this giddy celebration is only superficial. In fact, that very day, when Jesus talks about that crowd, he actually weeps for them. Luke chapter 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. It happened, by the way, in 70 AD. Titus and his armies surrounded Jerusalem. They encamped it. They surrounded it. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another. They absolutely level the city of Jerusalem because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Do you understand what Jesus is saying about these people? He's saying you really don't understand who I am. You're really blind. You're celebrating here, but you don't know who I am. In fact, in those verses it says, it has been hidden from your eyes. What is that about? What Jesus is saying is, while he was there, he did miracles, he walked on water, he fed 5,000, but at the end of the day, all they were were thrill seekers. They wanted more, they wanted more. They ref- he's saying, you refused to believe then, and now you can't. He sees right through that celebration. There are many people today who claim to know Jesus. They call, they call themselves Christians. Uh, they claim to have faith in Jesus, that they love Jesus. But how many of these people who call themselves Christians do it in the moment? But as soon as something happens, as soon as conditions change in their lives, they flip to the other side of questioning him. Why would you allow this, Jesus? Why is this happening in my life? They question him. They look to him for all of the good things, all the miracles, all the things they love. 
You know what Jesus called these people, and he, and he was talking to Christians when he said this. He says, there are lukewarm Christians. They're kind of middle of the road Christians. Look at this in Revelation chapter three. It says, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were totally for me, totally against me. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Jesus is saying that to the church of Laodicea. He's speaking about people who claim to be Christians, but they're lukewarm. See, if you or I were to visit Jerusalem in the first century, you'd find a lot of religious people. And if any one of them, if you asked them, give me a tour of the temple area, they would tell you, oh, look, we'll give you a tour. We're God's people. We believe in God. We trust him. We worship him. I mean, look at our rituals. Look at, this, look at the beautiful buildings we go to. What does it all mean? It means it is possible to mouth devotion to God, but a person's heart is given to other things. And so Jesus said to them, you're spiritually blind. You don't even recognize who's coming to visit you this day. Let me tell you something. The most important thing in your life is an accurate understanding of who God is. That is the most important passion and drive of your life, is to know who this God really is. And so many people today, church-going people, have a superficial understanding of who God is. How, how do we know who God is? That's why we need to be people of the book. That's why we need to be taught the scripture. That's why we need to read the scripture and study the scripture for ourselves. Because this tells us who God is really like. Let me just, let me just share a couple of, couple of characteristics about God. God is 100% perfect. His love is perfect. His justice is perfect. His wisdom is perfect. How many people do you know question God all the time? Why would you do that? Why does God do that? His, his justice is perfect. He's never unfair. His wisdom is perfect. God is totally self-existent. You know what I mean by that? It means God has no needs. He has absolutely no needs. You know, our kids ask us questions all the time we can't answer. Daddy, who made God? No one made God. Well, how did he get made? Well, he's, he's self-existent, which means that God, he's not dependent on anyone to make him. He's not dependent on anything else. He doesn't need to be created. He exists in Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. That means he has fellowship with one another. God is never lonely. He had relationships before he even created mankind. He doesn't make us because he needs us. He doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need anything to make him happy. There is no universe in which he depends for his life or his fullness. How does God feel about himself? He delights in himself. Really? God is happy. He's totally content. He delights in himself. Why wouldn't he delight in himself? He's perfect. It's good to delight in perfection. 
There are lots of religious people in the United States these days. Only, they say now, it's down post-COVID, about a third of Americans are in church every Sunday. But still, that's a lot of people. And 80% of the people polled in America still believe in some sort of God. But like those people on the road, many of them have no idea who God is really like. And frankly, many of those religious people do not live any different lifestyles than the people who are not religious. There's very little difference between the people who go to church and, do, and who don't go to church. God is the main connector, the main purpose, the main reality in the entire universe. He created and sustains everyone and everything. And therefore, if you treat any part of your life without relation to God, you are by definition being superficial. And the fact that that statement may seem odd to some of us is how infected we are with this God-neglecting, God-despising, and even more prevalent, God-belittling world. If you watch enough TV or movies or any kind of entertainment or sports or news, you cannot help but forget God. He's not there. And the mere absence or neglect of God is blasphemy. And therefore, I plead with you, Christian, to make it your number one passion in life to know him. I mean to really know him and to see him everywhere in every single part of your life. Don't be like the crowd. Don't be like them. Their faith was superficial. Second group to meet Jesus on that first Palm Sunday were the disciples themselves. Let's look at the verse. At first, the disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified that they realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. The superficial adoration of the religious crowd, they're not the only ones who failed to grasp who Jesus is. Jesus' own disciples just didn't get it. They didn't get it. They didn't have a clue. Maybe they should have. The Jewish prophets had been pretty clear. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You know when that was written? 600 years before Palm Sunday. It's in their Bible. These are going to be the leaders of the future church. They should have known. I'll tell you what's going on inside the mind of the poor disciples. 
They can't figure this out because they're confused about Jesus. See, they come to Jerusalem thinking Jesus is going to die. And now he, he, they look and everybody's wave, waving palm branches and saying, no, 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 you are to be our king. And they, don't, they can't figure this out. Look at John 11. So when they heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. So he's telling his disciples, we're going to go to Jerusalem. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go to Jerusalem that we may die with him. The, the disciples are expecting Jesus to die when he goes to Jerusalem. And, and Thomas says, we're going to die with you, Jesus. And now they see Jesus riding into the city and everybody's worshiping him. They can't figure this thing out. Are you going to die or are you going to be the king? The crowd is fickle. The crowd is superficial. Disciples are just flat out confused. They can't figure it out. They're perplexed. Third group. There's a third group that's involved in Palm Sunday, and that's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious leaders. This is the religious elite of the day. These are the pastors, the, the, the priests, the religious clergy. John chapter 12. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed the sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. The Pharisees are not just superficial or confused, the Pharisees are flat out angry. And they're worried. And they say to each other, you see, everything we're trying to do to stop this Jesus is not working. This is out of control. They want Jesus gone. Verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting in the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. They want Jesus dead. And now on Palm Sunday, it's all going bad for them because the crowds are loving him. But what the Pharisees don't know, what they don't know is that even their response is all part of God's plan of redemption. God is gonna use everything. He's gonna use the superficiality of the crowd. He's gonna use the doubt and fear of the disciples. And he's even gonna use the anger and the outright murderous plot of the religious leaders as part of his plan to bring Jesus to the cross. 
What I was trying to communicate to Norman in that waiting room was, Norman, God put Jesus on the cross. Isaiah 53. Surely he took up our pain and bore our sufferings. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sin, our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Jews did not put Jesus on the cross. The Romans did not put Jesus on the cross. And contrary to many sermons you've heard, you and I did not put Jesus on the cross. The Father put his son on that cross. Every hammer blow into the wrist of Jesus was at the command of the Father in heaven. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Why? Because it was the only way. It was the only way. And that's why, friend, anytime anybody says, I think I'm going to get to heaven by being a good person. I think I'm going to get to heaven because I was baptized and confirmed. I think I'm, I'm going to heaven because I did this or I did that. Do you understand how that's an insult to God who knows there's nothing a person can do to ever get into heaven? And so God has to send his son to die because the sacrifice has to be eternal and the sacrifice has to be perfect. The sacrifice has to be God himself to cover all our sins, past, present, and future. There are three kinds of people in this world. There are people who are not going to heaven and they know it. And you know why they know it? Because they don't care. They don't give a rip. These are the proud. These are the skeptics. These are people who are wise in their own eyes. They're like the Pharisees. Secondly, there are people who are going to heaven and they know it. Hopefully that's you and me. People who, have, who get it, who have surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ, they're born again, they know they're saved, they know they're right with God, and they know that it's all by His grace, nothing they've ever done. And then there's the third kind of people. And actually, this is the largest number of people. It's in the third category. This is the crowd. There are people who right now at least are not going to heaven, but they don't know it. They don't know it. They don't know who God really is. They don't know the gospel. They don't know the way. They're banking on a false hope or their religion or their morality. And what did Jesus do with these people? He wept for them. It absolutely broke his heart. Look what Jesus says at the end of chapter 12. He ends the whole Palm Sunday like this. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, 
It remains only a single seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Translation. Jesus is saying, if you want to really know me, you have got to die. Just like a seed dies when you put it in the ground. I'm a gardener. I was telling somebody here, I can't wait for the spring to happen. But if I take a, a packet of my burpee seeds there and I just spread them on my counter, nothing happens. But if I plant one of those seeds in my garden soil, you know what happens? The chemicals in that soil will rot and decompose the outer shell of those seeds. So in essence, the seed dies, but it is able to reproduce a new plant, a new life. Jesus is saying this to a farming society. They know exactly what he's saying. Jesus is telling them, I'm about to die, and if you want to know me and follow me, you've got to be willing to die also to everything in your life. It's all in or don't even bother. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He said, when Christ calls someone, he bids them come and die. What about you? Are you like the crowd? You have no problem saying, oh, I believe, I believe, I love Jesus. For you someone who has come to Jesus and you have said to him, Lord, you got all of me. Kill this person inside of me and raise up a whole new person in Christ. Let me pray with you right now. Everybody bow your heads. I don't have to tell you what group you're in. You know it. And this is an opportunity this morning to say to Jesus, Lord, I do not want to be like that crowd. I want to be a true disciple. I want to be somebody who really does know you and is, is all in. And so I, I ask you, please, please, kill the person inside of me and raise up a whole new person in you. Somebody that truly is born again. Somebody that truly is a new creation in Christ. And I trust you for that, God. You know, the devil wants to make us think we're going to be some kind of weird person. We're going to give up everything that's good in life and enjoyable. He's a liar. He's a deceiver. He knows that you're going to spend eternity with God if you do it. And he tries to confuse us and get us to just fight it. And, and there comes a point in our life we have to just say, God, you got me. You got all of me. And uh, trust him for what that means in the future. Lord, thank you for this picture, even though it was a hard day for you. But you give us a clear picture of what it means to really know you and to follow you. And we praise you for going to that cross eventually on Friday. And we're, we can really rejoice and celebrate that fa the fact that you didn't stay in that grave. 
And because you rose from the dead, you promise for all of those who belong to you that we will never die, we'll never die. We will be in eternity with you. Thank you for the gospel. And thank you for who you are. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the sweet fellowship of the Holy Spirit be upon us as we leave and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you.